If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the very back of them, toward the end of the New Testament, to the first letter of John. We're beginning this evening a new evening series in John's first letter. And this evening we'll be looking at the first four verses of chapter 1. And So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask this evening that you would settle the truth of your word in our hearts. That we would seek after you that you would comfort us with your truth, that you would give us confidence in what you have declared, that we might be bold, that we might follow after the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of all the pressures around us. Lord, we ask that you would meet with us tonight in your word, that by the power of your spirit, we would see your truth, and your truth would cheer our hearts, would spur us on to love and to good deeds. This we ask in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What binds people together today? What brings people together in a group, in an organization, in a family? What brings about that kind of fellowship that allows us to know each other, to serve one another, to show love for one another? For some, it is a common task or goal. For others, it is a commonality of upbringing or geography. But for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a fellowship that can only be found in a commonality that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that the church is truly diverse in its age, diverse in its nationalities, diverse in its backgrounds. We have different types of employment, different hobbies, different desires, but the one thing that brings us all together is a common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is what John is impressing upon those to whom he is writing and to us here this evening. That we find fellowship in our commonality in Jesus. We see that Jesus is the origin of our fellowship. And we see that proclaiming Jesus produces fellowship. And then we see finally that Jesus brings the joy of fellowship to our lives. Jesus is the center of our faith. He is the center of who we are in Christ. And this evening, as we look at the opening of this letter that contains many great doctrinal truths, we see that Jesus is front and center. This is the first of three letters that the Apostle John has written. It's the same Apostle John that has written the fourth gospel. He is the beloved disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John is writing these letters for a specific purpose in his day and age, but that also applies to us today. You see, John lived in a world of extreme pluralism. It was a world filled with relativism, filled with all sorts of philosophies and religions, all sorts of ways of life, varying definitions of what was good and what was bad. Does that sound at all familiar? But it wasn't just that the world outside was diverse in its thoughts and philosophies. John also lived at a time in which the church itself was beginning to be infected by relativism and pluralism. There were heresies that were rising up in the church in John's later days. It's hard to think about this, but not even a generation or two from the time in which Jesus walked the earth There were those who were seeking new ways, new truths, claiming they had new things to proclaim that were better than the gospel and that were needed to bring joy and fellowship. So John writes these letters to the church to give believers confidence in the gospel that was delivered by our Lord Jesus Christ to His disciples and by His disciples to the church And eventually even down to us. A handing down of the great truth of Scripture. It's interesting, but we can understand the purpose of why John writes when we compare a passage in this letter, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, with John's stated purpose in his gospel. Here in 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing these letters to believers, that they might have confidence and surety in what they have already believed, to know that the truth of God's word remains true. (coughs) This is different and distinct from what John writes at the end of his gospel in chapter 20 and verse 31, where he says the purpose of that book is that it was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the gospel of John is written that we might know that Jesus is the Christ and that believing on Him we might have the forgiveness of sins. But that is not the end of our journey. 
John says that as we continue on that journey, now we need confidence and boldness in the truth. And that is why he writes this letter to the church and to you and to me. Because after all, how do we find confidence in what we believe? For many of us, we can look inside ourselves and see if we have a confidence that sort of sits in our spirit. And if we are somehow disturbed, we can be tossed to and fro from what we believe. For others of us, we look to an experience to give us confidence in what we believe. An experience we have to validate the truth of God's word. But what John is telling us here this evening is that where we find confidence is in looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus to give us confidence and surety in what we believe. And this is what John says here in the very first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John takes us actually back before the beginning. It's interesting that John does not even begin this letter with the gospel. He goes back even before the gospel, before the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, before the call to faith, before we have believed. And he takes us back before time has even begun, even before Jesus was proclaimed, Jesus was, John tells us. The word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, existed before even time began. The language that John uses here is very similar and is reminiscent of the language in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, to remind us exactly of who Jesus is. Because you see, before we can understand what Jesus has done for us, before we can have confidence in the forgiveness of sins that comes in the gospel, we need to know who Jesus is. That he is God himself. That he precedes all of creation. That from the very first, before time began, our Lord Jesus Christ, uncreated, was in fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And this helps us to understand the true origin of Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about morals. Christianity is not primarily about a set of truths or beliefs, as good as they may be. Christianity is primarily about the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it is not the message that comes first. It is actually the messenger. Because the messenger, capital M, is Jesus. He comes first. The message proceeds from Jesus. And that gives us great surety that the message is in no way made up or fabricated. The message flows from the truth of who Jesus is. You see, the gospel is primarily not about solving problems, no matter how difficult they may be. The gospel is about declaring Jesus. And so often that is where we can get caught up. 
We want others to have their problems solved. And so we come to them and we tell them to believe on Jesus and they'll have better marriages. To believe on Jesus and their families will be stronger. To believe on Jesus and he will provide comfort and peace and healing. And the problem is that when those things don't appear instantly, the message appears false. Can we believe on Jesus and still struggle with our spouse? Absolutely. Can we believe on Jesus and still have problems with our children? Absolutely. Can we believe on Jesus and still have to look for work? Still suffer disease and even death? Absolutely. Because you see, the gospel is not primarily, first and foremost, about solving the problems that we have. God may do that by His grace. But the gospel is primarily about declaring the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what John begins to do in verse 2. He not only declares that Jesus is the eternal one, but that he is the manifested one. You see, the messenger is of primary importance, but the message is intimately related to the messenger. For Jesus comes with a message. The life was made manifest, John says, and we have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus comes with a message because he is the word of life. He is life itself. This is what John writes in the 14th chapter of his gospel. He says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And because of who Jesus is, his message has meaning. Jesus is the one who brings life to us. He manifests himself so that we might see and testify to and experience the life. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Jesus is real. Jesus is not some figment that we have made up. He is not a person who is fictitious that helps us to make it through the day. Jesus is as real as you and I are. No, more real. Jesus is the one who is manifested to bring life itself to his people. And so John has a real confidence in the truth. Because he has known and experienced Jesus. And he declares Jesus to us. And so when we know and experience Jesus, when we see and receive the forgiveness of sins that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, then we can declare him to others because he is real to us. He is the rock we stand on. He is the shelter in the storm. Jesus is as real as anything we know or can touch or can see or can hear. You see, John uses this language of sensory perception intentionally. Because if we think about it, that's what's actually real to us, isn't it? Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and it's pitch dark and you're not sure where you are and you're trying to get your bearings? What's one of the first things you do? You put your hand out and you make sure that the bed is still there. Put your hand on the dresser next to the bed. And okay, yes, I am standing. I do have 
solidity. And then you try and let your eyes adjust to your surroundings so that you can see and know that you're not dreaming, that you are aware and that things are real. We want to taste things. We want to smell things. We want to experience what is around us so that it takes on real and substantive shape to us. Now, it is not that the things that are non-material are not real. There is truth. There is love. But the things that are material give us great comfort. There is a solidity to them. We feel the chair to make sure it will hold us up. This is the way we are to view Jesus. Jesus is real. He is touchable. He is hearable. He is seeable. He is not simply a philosopher. He is as real as anyone that we know. And if we understand this, then this will affect and change us. It changes our view of the world. It changes the priorities that we have. And this is what John declares to us. His life is changed by the one that he has seen, the one that he knows. But Jesus does not stop with the one who believes. No, Jesus then is proclaimed to others to produce a real and true fellowship. You see, John tells us that there is a necessity to proclaiming the truth of Jesus. We see this at the beginning of verse 3. That which we have heard and seen, we proclaim also to you. You see, what John is saying is, it is not enough to see the truth. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? As we think about our faith, we think the most important thing is, is that we see and understand and we possess the truth. But John says, that's really only part of the story. We see Jesus, we know Jesus, but that must lead us to declaring Jesus, to proclaiming Him. And when John speaks of proclaiming, his word is very vivid. To proclaim means to tell others about the one we have seen, about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also has the connotation of a very public nature. We announce Jesus to others. We shout Him from the rooftops. We are not ashamed of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. We proclaim Him to a watching world. And we do so with great confidence. Because again, this word proclaim not only means to announce, it also has the connotation of reporting. Just like the reporters on the news. You've seen that. It seems that every local news station believes that what they need to do is send a reporter out to the place or the building or the road where something has happened. So that they can stand there with a microphone and say, as you see behind me in this building here, this is what happened. Look at the building. Look at me standing here. You can tell I'm telling you the truth. You see, that's the kind of confidence that we have when we proclaim Jesus. It is true we are certain of it. We report who Jesus is the same way that the news reporter reports the facts. Jesus is not just one to be believed upon. He is one who is faithful and true. And we can declare who he is and be confident in that declaration. 
You see, knowing Jesus is just the beginning of our life with Jesus. Jesus' manifestation to us and in the world gives us knowledge. But it also requires us to speak of who Jesus is. And as we speak of Jesus, this gives us opportunity to grow closer to others. We speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done, and we want others to know and experience this as well. And as they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are drawn together in great fellowship. We have a common bond in Christ. And this bond or fellowship occurs on a human level. Do you see what John writes here again in verse 3? He says, We proclaim Jesus with the purpose that, so that you too might have fellowship with us. You see, the reason we proclaim Jesus is so that others might know Jesus. It's not to win an argument. It's not to appear intelligent. It's not even to be right. The reason we proclaim Jesus is so that others might know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, then they are drawn into fellowship with us. If we think about that, that has a significant effect on our evangelism, doesn't it? When you speak to others of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you do so out of a heart that hopes and prays that your fellowship with the person you are speaking to will be founded and increased? that you want to draw closer to them as a person. They are not a notch to be put on your belt. They are not a statistic to be placed into a report. They are one that you want to draw close to in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what John says here. He uses the present tense so that you may have fellowship with us, so that right now... As you hear of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may continue in fellowship with us. Now this word for fellowship is a deep and rich word. There is a sense in which it speaks of an association, of a commonality that we have as we come together. But there is also a communion that we have one with another in fellowship. There is a like-mindedness. There is a love that grows up with this form of fellowship. But that even for the purpose of the gospel, there is also a partnership that arises. This word is also used by the Apostle Paul to declare of the partnership in the gospel that he has with others. You see, we want others to be drawn to the Lord and to join in declaring that he is king. To bring still more others into fellowship with us. That our fellowship might grow and deepen. But you will notice that this fellowship has its terms. Notice it is not just getting together. It is not just saying, let us enjoy one another's company. No, the fellowship that we have is based upon what we believe. It is a fellowship that we have with the apostles because of what they have heard and what they know and what they declare. There is a boundary of fellowship, a boundary of the truth of who Jesus is. This is sorely needed today because so often throughout the world and even in the church, 
Many want to reverse this. They want to begin with fellowship and commonality in the hopes of somehow they can come to agreement about the truth. We want to put the truth on a back burner. We want not to emphasize who Jesus is, what he demands, what he says about our sin and who we are. We want to begin with some sort of nice get-together and hope at some point we make it to the truth of Jesus. But do you see what the Apostle John does? He begins with the truth of who Jesus is and he says when we know this, then we can have deep fellowship and bond together. You see, John knew what conflict was about. All around him and the churches that he was speaking to were those who had separated out from the apostolic truth, who were setting up competing faiths and saying that they had secret knowledge that you had to believe and you had to understand in order to live a life of fellowship and grace and truth. And you see, John says, it is not by following after others, it is not by following after newfangled ideas that we find peace and fellowship and love. It is by following the truth, the truth that is set down in God's Word. Because you see, while there is a horizontal human kind of fellowship that comes from following Jesus. That is also founded in a vertical fellowship that we have with the Lord as we acknowledge the truth of what God has said. John says we may have fellowship with Him because indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the reason truth is so important is because of this dual nature of fellowship. We have fellowship not only with one another, we have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We are drawn together as we draw closer to the Lord. We find fellowship and communion at the foot of the cross, John says. We relate to each other based on how we relate to God. And so what John does is he founds this fellowship on fellowship with God. And the fellowship we have with God is based also on the gospel. It is not on our terms. We do not get to make God in our image. It is based on an objective revelation of who Jesus is. Who he is manifested to be. What he has declared. What we have seen and heard and touched. John makes this clear by speaking of the Father and the Son. When he speaks this way, he's summarizing the gospel. That God the Father sent the Son to redeem us from our sins. In speaking this way, John summarizes who Jesus is. He is the sent one, sent by the Father to perfect his work, the work of redemption. And John summarizes how we have fellowship together. We have fellowship around our relationship with the Lord. And this then leads, finally, to great joy, to the joy of fellowship that we find, first and foremost, by proclaiming Jesus. This is what John says in verse 4. He says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
This fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son that leads us to fellowship with each other brings joy. And our joy begins with our fellowship with Jesus. And this requires then that we declare Him. And as we declare Him to other, our joy grows. It's remarkable what John says. I'm writing these things to you so that I might be more joyful. Now, at first glance, this seems very selfish. John is writing so that he could be more joyful and happy. But we have to understand that the life of God is a life of shared joy. And by declaring who Jesus is, John cannot help but be filled with the joy of the Lord that comes to him. This is why John must write these things. He has to proclaim who Jesus is because that is actually the order of true life in Christ. Proclamation, which leads to true fellowship, which leads to true joy. But you see, John is not completely selfish in his declaring. Because you see, his joy is increased also from seeing others know Jesus. This is the other-centered nature of the gospel. It brings joy as we see others redeemed, as we see others restored, as we see others receive peace and comfort in Christ. The gospel tells us that it's not just about what we have, but it's about how we bring it to others. This is the nature of the gospel of grace. That's actually the point of evangelism and missions. It's not about numbers. It's not even primarily about obedience to the command of God. It is about the joy that comes to us when others know Christ. And when we understand that joy, our evangelism and our missions takes on a new emphasis. It takes on a new urgency. For we want to rejoice with others In knowing who Jesus is. When others know the truth, we rejoice. And we rejoice because they are brought into fellowship with us. You see, as we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, it is not primarily about winning, but it is primarily about fellowship in Christ. Do you want to increase your joy in the Lord? today, then the Apostle John calls you to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and to proclaim him to others that they might have fellowship with you even as you have fellowship with the Father. This is the greatest joy that we can know here on earth. The fellowship that we have with the triune God that brings us into fellowship with each other as we go and gather around the throne of grace and worship our Creator and Redeemer. Let's pray.